teachers can achieve financial freedom. They can. They absolutely can. Our pensions are our superpower. Our pensions are not going to carry us through. We definitely need investments in a 403b or Roth IRA or real estate. We definitely need to have other things on the side. But having guaranteed income for your lifetime, there's nothing better than that. <laughs> T minus 10 seconds. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. If you want the episode show notes for this episode, go to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this episode. In the show notes, you'll get the transcribed version of the conversation, the links that we mentioned, and so much more. Also, whether you are an OG journeyer or brand new to the podcast, I've created a free jumpstart guide to help you on your financial freedom journey. It includes the top episodes to listen to, stages to go through to reach financial freedom, resources, and so much more. You can go to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart to get your guide right now. Okay, let's hop into the episode. Hey, 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 journeyers. I'm really excited to bring you this conversation I have on Rose Mendonca. She is an educator and financial expert with over 30 plus years of experience She is a licensed teacher and school counselor on a mission to help all educators create wealth and the retirement of their dreams. She also created Teachers Talk Money to help educators understand their pension options and create a plan for wealth. I'm so excited to talk to Rose because as most of you know, if you've been listening to me for a while, I love teachers. My husband is a teacher and I just think that anytime that I can educate or help teachers understand how much power they hold and how they can also have a rich life. I'm excited to do that. So I want to welcome you to the podcast, Rose. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and have this opportunity to speak with you. Yeah. So Rose, please tell me a little bit about how you got started in teaching, like your career, and then what woke you up to needing to be better with your money or what led you to this road of being someone who talks about money in this way? Yeah, definitely. So I grew up in Lowell, Massachusetts, which is an urban city outside of Austin. I grew up in a, an immigrant family. So both my parents were immigrants from the Azores Islands, which are off the coast of Portugal. So I was first gen, go to college, uh, always worked really hard, was a great student, got a scholarship, went off to UMass Amherst. I grew up in a home where my dad didn't work. He was retired early because he had a major accident. And my mom worked, but then she too was retired when computers came in. She was a seamstress in the mills, right? Because Lowell was a mill town. But then when all the work went elsewhere, she was retired too. Luckily, my parents owned their home outright. Like my dad paid cash for everything. So I grew up in a family where everything was cash. I never saw a credit card until I landed on a college campus. So you can imagine where that went. But um, I grew up in a family where everything was cash. The one thing I do remember clearly, which I did not like, is that my mom always had to ask my dad for money. 
And, and I think that comes from just that traditional background. But I always remembered that as a woman and I did not like it um, because my mother worked, yet my dad controlled all the finances all the time. So I didn't really learn much about money. That's just like a memory that I have. I was always a hard worker though. So like even through college, I worked two and three jobs. I was always working, but I never had any money. (laughs) So because I was at that time, very much a spender. I just wanted to fit in and I wanted to have things. And even in high school, I saved enough money to buy my first car cash. So I've always been like, not a saver, but like a spender, but I would save the money to spend if that makes any sense. So as you can imagine, in college, I got into a lot of credit card debt because at that time, this was in the early 90s, credit card companies could be on campuses. They were giving away all kinds of stuff. I mean, at one point, my husband jokes all the time. He's like, you had 27 credit cards. He's like, are you insane? Because they just throw them at you and it just becomes so easy. And at that point in my life, I I was an intelligent person, but I knew nothing about money. I knew nothing about how money worked at all. Like I had no idea about investing or, you know, what it meant to buy a house or like how all these pieces kind of work together. And then I became a teacher. I started my career in actually Brooklyn, New York, in Bedford-Stuyvesant at the school called the Benjamin Banneker Academy, which was at that time a, what they call a new vision school. And I, w- I had to teach kids entrepreneurship. So they sent me off to this, which was kind of a turning point, really sent me off to this class to learn how to teach students how to start their own businesses. (laughs) And I came away with like, I should start my own business. I'm like, so while I was helping my students start a cafe in our school, which by the way, earned enough money to send them to Mexico for um, a couple of weeks. I also started my own business at that time, which was an after-school program called Lighthouse Learning Center which did an after-school program and also did a summer program. And I earned enough money from that venture to actually put the down payment on my house that I bought in Massachusetts. After I had my first child, we moved back to Massachusetts, which my husband's from New York, but I'm from Massachusetts. So we moved back here and I got a job teaching at Lowell High School, which was the high school that I graduated from. And, you know, just one day, one day in the teacher's room, right? Because this is where teachers find out information is in the teacher's room. There was this teacher, Miss Wilson, and she was like, oh, my 403B is doing awesome. I'm going to retire this year. And I looked at her and I was like, what's a 403B and why do you need one? <laughs> you know? And that was like my first introduction to that. And I was what, 32 years old, maybe or 30, like in my early 30s. Um, And she's like, oh, yeah, you need a 403B. So she's like, this is how teachers invest for their future to complement their pensions. Like I had never, you know, I knew we had a pension, but I never knew that there was this other vehicle that you could use to gain money and eventually financial independence. So in our teachers' mailboxes, right, as I'm sure you know, these companies put these little, well, at that time they would put postcards. They don't do postcards anymore, but they used to put these little postcards. And like the one we used to get all the time was from EXA. Now it's called EXA. Back then it was something else, but it was, it's EXA. So I signed up because I didn't know any different, right? I didn't know we actually had options and they presented it like, this is the 403B vehicle, right? This is how you do it. 
then as I started to read more and I educated myself more, I realized I made a big mistake and it was good because I caught it like within, I think, two or three years and ended up switching everything that I had in EXA to Fidelity, which is the other, um, we have several companies that are offered to us, but Fidelity is the best in terms of fees for low cost fees and variety of investing. So from there, then I found out about a Roth IRA. So then I opened that. So I made my husband do the same. And then I decided, you know what, I need to learn more about this stuff. I got really involved with it because like I'm a teacher, right? What do teachers do? We learn, right? And I actually had gone to see a certified financial planner in the interim of all this. And he really didn't want to help me. Like it just made me upset because he just met with me. But at that time, I didn't have enough assets to make me valuable for him. And that really upset me because I was like, but you could still help me like figure out stuff out or, you know, whatever. But he just kept saying, you don't have enough money yet. (laughs) And then I started thinking, why don't I become a financial planner so that I can help teachers figure it out? You know what I mean? And then that's when I started taking the CFP courses at BU and I would go at night and I just, I started really slow. I would take one class a year trying to have my district pay for it. Then finally they said, we can't pay for those anymore because that's not really related to your job. And I was like, okay. So then um, I applied for a scholarship, got a scholarship to finish out. And I'm kind of coming to the end of that and will soon be preparing to take the national exam to actually be a CFP. And then two years ago, I launched my website, Teacher Talks Money, to help teachers, you know, help coach them. Because I find that young teachers don't get this information. Our districts and our human resource departments, they're so overwhelmed. I mean, Lowell High School has over 100,000, you know, students in it. It's a huge district. And so teachers just don't get the information. Like even myself three years ago, like I was poking around in the human resource page on our website and they had added a 457 and they didn't tell anybody. They didn't, I was like, are you, what? Like, I was so mad. Like, I was like, so I signed up for the 457. I have a 457 now too. And I'm funding that even though, you know, I'm close to the end of my career. I'm about five years before I retire, but I opened it anyway because they had a Roth version and I wanted to be able to put away some of that money that I could pull out tax-free. So it's really been a journey. And the way that I found you was through a course that I took with Grant Sabatier. So he was one of the books that I read in my journey. Like I've read a lot of books. I could probably critique a lot of books. Um, <laughs> so he had put this course together and he had interviewed you. You were one of the people on, in the course that he interviewed. And so then I was like, oh, what's this journey to launch? And then I went to your website and I you know, and started listening to your program. So that's that's where our connection came in. So I think teachers can achieve financial freedom. They can, they absolutely can. Our pensions are our superpower. Our pensions are not going to carry us through. We definitely need investments in a 403B or Roth IRA or real estate. We definitely need to have other things on the side. But having guaranteed income for your lifetime, there's nothing better than that. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Rose, all right. First of all, I'm just like smiling this whole time listening to your story because especially when you brought up Brooklyn, because you know I'm a Brooklyn girl (laughs) and I know where Benjamin Banneker is. I knew some people who went there. Oh, you do? Yeah, like that's not too far (laughs) from where I grew up in my junior high school, high school years. So very familiar with that school. 
I love that. And did you say your husband was a teacher too? He, yep. He started off as a teacher and then he became a librarian because he said he didn't want to correct for his entire life. So he was the smart one and he became a librarian and he's still a librarian to this day. He loves it. Oh, wow. Okay. So many places to start here and a wealth of information that we can share with teachers. And so let's go back a bit. Did you have student loans when you graduated? Undergrad, I didn't because I got scholarships to get me through undergrad. And then I just had this fixation that I wanted to go to Columbia University. I would, I was always a good student. And when I came out of high school, I, I got into an Ivy League school, but couldn't go because of the finances. My dad was like, no way. And it's funny because at that time it was $20,000. And my father was like, we don't have $20,000 a year to send you to college. You're not going there. So I went to UMass Amherst. And I didn't have any debt when I graduated from there. But I always had this sense that, like, I need to go to an Ivy League school. Is that how you ended up in New York, by going to Columbia? Yep. So you always knew you were going to be a teacher? So that's what you went to school for? Yes. Did you consider starting salaries or what the cost of your schooling would be at Columbia versus what you thought you would make as a teacher? Or did you not think about that at the time? I did not think about that at all. (laughs) and I should have. (laughs) Yeah. Looking back, it seems like a very simple research that you should do. Like if you're going to invest X amount of money to this career, and even if you love it and it's going to be impactful, how much are you going to be paying for that degree versus how much you can earn? And is it still worth it? And some people may say yes, right? But you could have chosen maybe a lower cost school. But I think this is what I urge parents now to consider and have those conversations with their children about, hey, if you want to go into liberal arts to be a teacher or social worker, that's great work. But let's consider the school and the cost that you are going to now get or take on in order to have this career that may not be as high paying in the beginning. So I love your transparency there because I think that's a key component of figuring out where you go to school and then what you want to pay for. Now I'm going to get into just more like details because I'm always interested in this. When you switched from uh, New York to go back to Massachusetts, or did you lose any of the benefits that you had gotten working in New York or did any of that transfer, like maybe your years in service or pension, or did you have to start new again because you went to a new school district or city? I had to start again. I took my money out. There wasn't that much money in that retirement system because I'd only been there, I think, five years, not even. So I took the money. I had to pay tax on it. I took the money that I had put in. When I got to Lowell, I was able to buy back the three years that I worked at a public school. So I had to pay that so that I got those years in Massachusetts. Okay. So it is possible. It's one of the things I think about as a teacher. I know some cities and districts have higher ranges or pay versus others, but then that also translates to, I know New York City, for example, it's higher cost of living, but you may get paid more than if you are in a rural area. And how that works, if you're looking to make a change, will you be able to take some of your years with you and what that looks like? And I'm sure it's different for every maybe district, but it's always something I thought about. Yeah, that's what makes it difficult is that and why a lot of people don't move around as a teacher. Unfortunately, like it does limit you. Although this younger generation doesn't seem to care. So I'm thinking that the, the rules are going to slowly start to change. But, you know, it's like the golden handcuffs, right? You have to stay in your district for X amount of years. 
to really benefit from the state pension system. Here in where I am in Massachusetts, you have to get to 30 years to like really make it worth your while. Obviously, people leave at 20 years or they even leave at 10, but your pension is considerably less. Right, right. Let's go into a bit about the options you have as a teacher. Because when I discovered from listening to another podcast who had teachers on it and the, both of the husband and wife were teachers, and he was discussing that they were frugal for the most part. So they weren't earning a lot, but I think combined they were earning six figures and then they were frugal. But he talked about maxing out the 43B and then a 457. And I never knew a 457 even existed. I do want to define these terms just because there may be people listening who don't know what they are. So let's just go through what uh, you already explained what the 403B is. And that's the pre-tax retirement account usually given through the, I guess, school or district and the teacher association that you work through. And then there's also a 457 plan. Can you explain what that is? Yes. And a 457 is very similar to a 403B, but the the key differences is that you can have a Roth option. So you can put money into it after tax. So when you go to take that money, you don't, you won't be paying taxes on it, which is a really big benefit. And also if you leave your school district, you can take that money with you penalty free as well. That's the key there, you know, and a 43B doesn't have that. Right. And it's still pre-tax and the limit is higher than if you went to like an outside Roth IRA, right? Yes. Because it acts as, I forgot, you know, I'm not up to speed on the latest max contributions for pre-tax retirement accounts. Do you know what they are right now We're in 2023? Uh, yeah, for for twenty for 2023, it was 22500 And in 2024, it's going to be 23000 So that's, that's an amazing because a 403B, you can put 23000 in that, but you can also put 23000 in a 457. And a lot of people don't know that because a Roth IRA, you can only put 7000 Right. So it's a big difference. It is. And the Roth IRA is also a t- after-tax investment. And, you know, there are a couple of things here. So you, most people, like even me when I worked in corporate America, I only had access to one pre-tax retirement plan where at that time when I was working, I think the contribution limit was 18500 and one of the ways when my husband and I saved the amount of money we saved in two years, we saved and invested 169000 is because in those two years, I maxed out my retirement plan at work, my 401k, and then he maxed out his 43B plan and his 457 plan. And we chose to keep those pre-tax. So that was times three, our ability to not only shield our money from taxes because it was pre-tax. It was then allowed us to use these powerful vehicles to invest. And I think if I was someone listening, you know, I'd say, well, wow, those limits are high, but that would also depend on the income you make. Because sure, if I had $46,000 to put away, assume I was earning enough that I can live off the rest of that. And, you know, I do want to talk a bit about teachers and their income and how that works for maybe someone listening and saying, well, yeah, those are great strategies. But how am I going to max that out if I barely earn 46000 to begin with? Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to say first off that I didn't start out maxing it out. I started contributing in my early 30s, $50 a week. And then every time I got a raise, I would double it. At this point, I'm now maxing it out. But at that time, 
I did not max it out nearly because my salary was lower. I had a mortgage still at that time. I think the important thing to remember is make it a priority in whatever financial situation you're in because you need the time for money to grow. And I think a lot of teachers, young teachers especially, don't know these things exist and they start too late. So I don't think it's so much the amount. I think it's more the consistency because like once you start it, and then I I always tell young teachers, start with 50 bucks and you won't even miss 50 bucks pre-tax. And then when you get comfortable with that, go to 100, you know what I mean? And then you get a raise, double it to 200. And the way that I've been able to do it, obviously having a partner helps, as you know, because the way we did it in our family is I worked my way up to maxing mine out but my husband has never maxed out his. He has his, but he's never maxed it out. You know, we have upped it through the years and we're going to try to get him to max his out before he retires. But mine has always been maxed out. And then we've maxed out the Roth IRAs because you put significantly less into those. And the 457, I'll never max out because there's just not enough income there. And then another thing to take into consideration too is, you know, I've always tutored on the side. I've always done extra jobs in order to make up that money that is going into these retirement accounts. So it's doable, but you you do have to finagle your finances. Like you either have to really cut back on uh, your expenditures, or you have to have like these little side jobs. Like I know teachers who have a landscaping business or teachers who do summer camps or, you know what I mean? Like you have to make that savings a priority in your life and you go after it, it can be done. Yeah. So I love that you talked about, it's more about the consistency than the actual amount when you're definitely when you first start as a single person, as like a teacher or someone who's not combining their money with someone else, because you could be partnered up, but you're not combining things or commingling money, right? And it's separate. Then the strategy of doing what you can, and even as a family, you still need to just do what you can But let's just say, like you said, you're contributing $50 a week to our A43B. Would you also recommend that they look into their state-sponsored 457 plan to also put in 50 simultaneously or 25 and 25? What is your opinion on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, nobody ever says I saved too much. I have never heard those words in my entire life. No one has ever said I have saved too much. It's always, I haven't saved enough. So whatever vehicles you have available to you, I think you most definitely should use. And the pre-tax is great because it lowers your tax bracket now. And that's one of the things that we were using as a tax strategy because my husband and I are both teachers. We, you know, eventually we, we started making six figures, as you know, and we needed a way to bring our taxes down. And if you have a 457 with a Roth option, and you can create a, po- a pool of money that you can go into later tax-free, yes, please do that. Hey, Journeyers. If you are loving this podcast, then you will love my book, Your Journey to Financial Freedom, A Step-by-Step Guide to Achieving Wealth and Happiness. I wrote this book for you. This book is for you if you want a clear and enjoyable path to having more money, options, and a rich life. This book is for you if you hate your commute and the fact that you need to seek approval or permission from a boss. I hated that when I worked. This book is for you if you weren't born into wealth, you didn't marry rich, 
or win the lottery, but you still want freedom. This book is for you if you're at a crossroads, a major decision or event is imminent. Maybe a career change, marriage, starting a family. Pressures are reaching a tipping point and the discomfort and the desire for more can no longer be ignored. And this book is for you if you find yourself zoned out at meetings, looking out the window or daydreaming about the life you truly want. So go pick up yourjourneytofinancialfreedom.com so I can show you how to map out how to get from where you are today to where you ultimately want to be and enjoy the journey while you're on the path. Head over to yourjourneytofinancialfreedom.com to see where you can pick the book up. It's available on Amazon, bookshop.org, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore, everywhere. Go to yourjourneytofinancialfreedom.com to get the book now. So also the strategy that if you are a teacher, but you're married to someone who maybe has a higher earning potential and or makes more, which is kind of the situation with myself and my husband, we could afford to max out his retirement plans, the 457 and 403B that did cut his check in half. But we also had my income to help supplement, right? So obviously that takes talking and being on the same page. And you really have to be a team in that scenario because maybe someone's putting more money in their retirement account and not as much into the other person's. But if you are obviously hopefully staying together and that's the plan, then it does benefit you as a whole and as a family. So just something to think about as a teacher, like maybe you don't earn a lot, but maybe you have a partner who does. You guys trust each other. You guys are working together financially. And so you maxing out your retirement plans available to you, even though it reduces your income. If you're combining everything as a household, if you can live off or more on lean on the other income, that might be a strategy to help you reduce your taxable income too. Yes, absolutely. Now, when we talk about maxing out our earnings or our income potential as a teacher, I totally agree. So that's one of the things my husband does or did more of when when we had less responsibilities with the kids. But it was summer school, uh, after school, coaching. And, you know, he was able to really earn more. So what are other ways that teachers can leverage their skills, whether it is outside the school system, so starting new businesses based on their skill sets, or going back and getting certificates, because I know that's one thing he did where he is at his max potential based on his master's degree and all the courses and classes he took. Let's just go over how teachers can make more money. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, the number one is work in a district that's highly paid. I work in a district that's highly paid in Massachusetts. Massachusetts is one of the states that pays their teachers fairly well. The other thing, and I always tell young teachers You need to get as much education as you can under your belt within the first 10 years because that moves you all the way to the end of that pay scale. And then you get your yearly incremental as you go, but eventually you're going to hit a block. So you you need to be over on that pay scale as far as you can. Obviously, a PhD is the highest or a doctorate, and I don't have that. I have a master's plus 60, but I've had a master's plus 60 since I was in my late twenties. So I've always been at that upper end of the pay scale. And so every year that you're getting more raises, that's more money that you're making and you're already maxed out on your steps. So I always tell teachers that's the first way and you do it as cheap as you can or as frugal as you can. 
most districts, like our district gives us $1,000 a year, or you look for free things that will get you that same credit, whatever you can do to minimize your out-of-pocket expenses in taking those classes. And, you know, sometimes the district will offer you a a lower rate as well because they have partnerships with local colleges. So go seek those things. I've even had friends who have like traded these thousand dollars with one another. Like if they're not using it, they'll give it to someone else. And, And people have gotten master's degrees from that. So that's the first way. The second way is obviously being entrepreneurial. Like I said, I have friends who have landscaping business, snow plowing business. I had a tutoring business. I had a learning center. You know, at one point I even tried to do a, a swimwear company that failed, went bankrupt. We'll, we'll leave that for another time. <laughs> but like, <laughs> you know, so there's all kinds of things. And like, it's a journey. And that now I'm doing, you know, financial coaching for educators. And I've also had you know, jobs on the side. Like I used to uh, sell shoes on commission at Nordstrom's. I mean, I've done so many different things. Again, it's really about making savings a priority and having that desire to one day be financially free and not be on anyone else's time clock and actually be able to enjoy the money that you've accumulated over the years and have it work for you instead of the other way around. Yeah. And you know, some of this stuff, it might take, like you said, a few years to complete, but you got to put it in motion. You have to be proactive because whether you like it or not, the time is going to pass anyway. And so you can be, you know, feeling like I'm not earning enough. You don't have the degree or classes behind you to help demand or put you at that higher pay scale. And so it's time to look forward and say, well, in five years, I want to be able to be at the top pay scale or closer to the top. Here's what I need to do and create a plan for that instead of feeling like, oh, there's nothing I can do. I just earned this as a teacher because my husband earns good money, really good money in New York City as a teacher because he has his master's and he got his straight out of his bachelor program and took all those courses. So it's just something I encourage all teachers who are listening, especially if you're younger and you're just starting out to put yourself in a position so that when you are in your 30s and 40s, where you have maybe more responsibility because a family or other things happening in your life, you're taking care of that other stuff first. But I don't want to leave the older teachers out. <laughs> you know, people who didn't know this, didn't start doing this in their 20s or maybe switched careers to be a teacher. There's still hope. There's still things you can do. You can do the same thing that we're talking about, right? Absolutely. And hopefully for those older teachers, they, they've been paying down their mortgage. And that's another thing I like to share with people one way that that I structured what I did for my children is I paid off my mortgage before my children started college. Because because I had student loans and my husband had student loans, and thank God they were forgiven this year, Yahoo, they're gone. We paid off our mortgage on our house prior to our oldest son going to college. And so, you know, and then we took that money and paid for him to go to a state school. Because I didn't want him to have any student loans. And I'm doing the same thing with my second son. I'm trying to pay as he goes. So just something to throw out there for people to think about. I did that by refinancing into a 15-year mortgage and then hustling to pay that payment and just getting it done. Right. And of course, doing the math and making sure, you know, rates for me too. When I did that, I refinanced into a 15-year was because rates were so low that even when I took money out, it, it it was fine to do that and kept my mortgage the same as it was before. 
The other thing I just want to note in terms of teachers making money, I think teachers are the best entrepreneurs in usually whatever they pick to do. Even in the personal finance space, a lot of the people who I really love the way they talk about money, they were teachers like Tiffany the Budgetista. I always give her props on her ability to teach and connect with her audience because, I, you know, she was a preschool teacher. And I think that she does that same thing, I think, when she talks to us or to people. <laughs> and I'm like, exactly. And that's why people love her, because she just gives off this caring vibe and she can teach complicated things and make it simple for people, which is what people want. And then... I know this episode is probably going to come out a few weeks or months after we are actually recording it. But I, today I went to my daughter's, they had a Thanksgiving celebration into the classroom and it was so organized, you, like the, the classroom and the things that these teachers are doing and their parents too. And I'm like, how are you a parent yourself? And then you have to come in here and do all this. <laughs> like, But I was just so impressed. And I'm like, using any bit of their brain or creativity or organization power into something else, they do well. Because things that for me would be overwhelming, I'm like, I can't do it. I don't even know how to start to make this room look this way. They know how to do. So I just want to encourage teachers that you probably have a very, what you don't consider a significant skill set that a lot of people don't have that can be monetized to help supplement what you're doing and then eventually maybe take over what you're doing if that's a better route for you to take. Absolutely. I mean, I think about my own journey when I start to reflect back. I've done so many different things. And like even, you know, three years ago, I acquired a condo, actually two condos that we now Airbnb. I never thought I would Airbnb two condos, but here we are. We're Airbnb two condos and I'm hoping to have them paid off before we retire. And then they'll provide extra cash flow for us in our retirement. At least that's the plan for now. And I agree wholeheartedly with you. Like, So many times people just say, well, I'm just a teacher. And it's like, no, you're not just a teacher. Teachers, like you said, have so much creativity. Like we we have business mindsets. Like we can do anything. We have entrepreneurial. And you know why? Because we love to learn. Most teachers who love to learn will go out through curiosity and seek things out. Like, do you think in my late 20s, I ever thought that I was going to go into the finance world, like to become a CFP? Not in your life. I studied English literature, you know, like I, I, I didn't know that. Like you don't know where the world is going to take you. But if you have that sense of curiosity and you just want to learn, then the world is open to you. Like I remember sitting in classes at BU, Boston University, with all these financial planners from Schwab, Fidelity, like all these big names, Vanguard. And these companies were paying for these people to get their CFP and they would get up and they'd be like, yes, I'm, you know, blah, blah, blah. Then I'd get up and I'd be like, yeah, I'm a school counselor and teacher. And they'd look at me like, what are you doing in this class? (laughs) (laughs) But the reality is, is that all people need to know that information. All people need to know about life insurance. All people need to know about investment vehicles. All people need to know about mortgages and how they work. We all need to know this information. Yeah. And I love how, so I talk about this in the book, Your Journey to Financial Freedom, about hyperlinks and clicking on the hyperlinks in your life. And really, it's just you know a term or way to describe being curious. And I think some people are not primed to be curious or know that that's a missing character trait, that they're not looking into things or inquisitive or asking questions or problem solvers. And I feel like teachers are so primed to be that way so that 
you just have to have the confidence in yourself to say, okay, I can apply what I'm doing in, in this classroom to my life, to being an inquisitive about my life. I don't have to give up on myself and my dreams just because I am a teacher. You know, there's other things I may want to pursue. So I just, I just feel like because you're more primed, because you have that mindset of learning, that clicking on hyperlinks, going down rabbit holes, following the next best step, even if you make a wrong step, that you'll be able to recover because of that curiosity and inquisitiveness that you have naturally as a learner and as a teacher. I want to talk a bit now about your student loan forgiveness, because I think that is also something that teachers need to make sure that they are looking into to see if it applies to them. What was your process? What are some tips for teachers who say, well, I still have loans and maybe I need to look into the loan forgiveness program? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for a long time, like my husband and I deferred our loans, which, you know, we needed to do in terms of like, we had a growing family and we were had a mortgage and all these things. So we would defer the loans, which of course made them balloon even more. But we both worked in urban districts. So under the Obama administration, when he came in and he created public service loan forgiveness, I was the one that certified every year. Like I would get the papers, fill them out because they were papers, physical papers that you had to fill out and then have your school district sign off that you'd been a teacher. And then I would do the same for my husband and I'd say, go get these signed. And then, and then I would submit them. And I religiously did that for years and years and years. And then COVID hit, right? And everybody was sent home. The student loans were put on pause. Everybody was like, Yahoo, not for COVID, but for the student loans being on pause. <laughs> and then that's when, you know, the younger generation, you got to give it to them, became very vocal about the student loan debacle because it really is a debacle. And they changed companies, whatever. And then I got a notice in the mail, like I was getting ready for our student loans to start again. And we both got notices in the mail that said, your loans have been forgiven. And I was like, what a relief. So all those years of paying and also getting that certification done every year had added up all those 120 payments that we had to make. And like, it's a game changer when you don't have student loans. Right. Did you have to submit anything officially to request it or it just looked back at what you did previously and automatically forgave them? I did have to fill out a form, which I think it just ended in October. There was a form that you had to fill out requesting your loans to be forgiven. And I didn't even think our loans would be forgiven because I thought we had still more payments that we had to make. But under their new rules, regulations, I guess it had been long enough. I mean, my husband and I are both in our 50s now. And these loans were for when we were in our 20s. Do you have any advice for people who did not do what you did and did not keep track of payments or did certifications, missed out on that October deadline to submit for forgiveness? I know there are there are things still in the work and changing, and this might come out in a couple months, but anything for people who want to see if they can get something forgiven? My advice would be to start with the federal government website and see what's posted there or go back into who their student loan provider was originally and contact them and see where they are in the process. I also would give a shout out to Adam Minsky. He is a lawyer out of Boston, and he is like, 
you know, a self-proclaimed student loan guru, but he really is. And he's actually the one that helped my husband and I get on the right payment plan because that was the other craziness. Like they had 6,000 payment plans. Like nobody knew what payment plan they should be on. You know what I mean? It was very difficult to, to figure that out. Again, being a learner, investigating things, I stumbled upon his blog and then spoke to him. And he's the one that actually helped us. And I forget how much money we paid him. It was so well worth it. I think we paid him maybe $600. And he put us on the right plan. We stuck to the plan. And he said, get these forms filled out every year. We did it. And now we have student loan forgiveness. But it's not too late because the program is still in flux. So if you're a teacher, and I still tell teachers right now, get on that website, fill out every form you can find, you know what I mean? Because you never know what is going to transpire. And if you want a little more extra guidance, go to somebody like Adam Minsky, who really knows the program inside out. And he's always keeping up on the changes that the administration is doing because Biden is putting his own spin on things too. Yeah, I I also recommend... Student loan planner. So Travis has been on the podcast, I think, two times. And he's also someone that I feel like I can safely recommend to people in terms of knowing their stuff, whether it's his videos or articles. And he keeps up to date with all the latest changes in government around that. So I would definitely check out studentloanplanner.com and we'll link some of my previous episodes with him. I know some of it will be outdated based on where we are now, but it's still super helpful to look into how you can really manage your student loans and hopefully get them forgiven. And I know some of this is going to take time and more effort than we really want to do. Like we just want to live our lives. Like we're tired when we come (laughs) home. Like now we have to call this place or on our break, we got to do this thing. But imagine though that, you know, maybe it takes like, let's add up all the minutes. Maybe it takes two hours stretched over a month to figure this out. But that leads you to getting twenty, thirty, a hundred thousand dollars worth of loans forgiven, or have a different plan or strategy that's helpful. It's worth it. It's worth the time and energy to do it. So just do it. Just just take the time, figure it out, and do it. Yep, absolutely. Well worth it. I mean, when I was doing all that certification stuff, like I had no idea my loans would ever be forgiven. I was just hopeful that things would turn around. I mean, I was even just hopeful when the Obama administration created it. I was like, oh my God, like this might actually be a path out of this crushing debt. So there's still hope and they're still trying to iron it all out because I think the political people have realized that you cannot put this amount of debt on people and then expect them to afford a mortgage, buy cars, raise a family it's finally dawned on them that like, no, no, we can't do this. So they have to give people a path out. Talk to me about your real estate. So I love how you just said, okay, and I have condos. <laughs> you know, I paid off my mortgage. How did you get into real estate investing? How did you find or have the additional money to put down to do that and whatever investment it took? Because I know that is a pathway that people do want to explore. And at what stage should they do that? Should they make sure they're at least investing a certain amount in their 403B or 457 plan first before moving on to real estate or is something they can explore in tandem? I mean, I think it's something they definitely can explore in tandem. But again, I didn't come to real estate till much later in my life. And to be honest, my husband got an inheritance from one of his parents passing away. 
And then we were in a better position financially at that time to put the down payment down on this condo. It's not something that I was actually really searching for, but like, again, being an inquisitive person, I'm always looking at real estate, things that are available, units that are available, whatever. And one day it was actually during COVID 2020 when I was just looking online and I saw this little condo at the beach that was like five minutes from Seabrook Beach. And it was relatively cheap. It was only like listed for $120,000. And I was like, wow, I wonder, like, I think we could probably afford that, you know, and then we could Airbnb it and make some money. That's really how we stumbled into that. One thing I wish I had done when I was younger, if I had known more when I was younger, is maybe bought a two family or a three family and lived in one unit and rented out the others. I wish I had had more foresight to do that. But yeah, I mean, real estate is definitely something that complements any financial plan. But again, it's a lot of work. You get benefit from it, but it's a lot of work. So you have to be prepared for that. So I definitely think like if you're interested in real estate, like I've always liked houses, I've always liked, you know, I am a licensed real estate agent, even though I've never really done it. Because, you know, I just like to learn things. (laughs) But like, yeah, if you enjoy that, definitely, you know, explore it because you're building equity. That was the word I was searching for earlier, right? So you are building equity at the same time you're providing yourself cash flow. So you're getting the best of both worlds there. But again, we wouldn't have been able to do that if we hadn't received that small inheritance. But for people who don't receive an inheritance, you can make that part of your financial plan. Like, you know, we had to put down, I think it was $30,000 on that condo. So you save that money. Like if that's like, you know, your plan, then like make that one of your priorities and save that money so that you can then invest in real estate. So there's a variety of ways that you can do it. I'm not a real estate expert by any means, but if that's something that interests you, I mean, go like, again, go after it, you know, make it a priority. When I was listening to podcasts like this on my commute, and even if I, did, I didn't know all the steps she took to buy property, but I just heard that, wow, like she has a condo. It would, it would make me inspired to say, okay, you know what? Let me do some research and start to think about how, if I needed a down pay, how much down payment I could afford and how much, how much house I could afford if this was an investment, if I had the time to do it. Like this would prompt me on a rabbit hole that I would go down because I was excited to hear someone who, you know, is not an expert, but just loves learning and I was able to do it. So I think that would be really inspiring. The last thing I want to ask you about, since you do have kids and they are older, it seems, because one's in college, one's seemingly about to go to college, is this inquisitive nature, this, I feel like, drive that you had, you know, always having a job, starting side hustles, you know, seeming to really be a self-starter. How are you instilling that? Or how did you instill that in your kids? Because one of my issues or what I think a lot of us parents who now have more than we did when we were growing up is like the reason why we got here is because of that lack or not knowing and making the mistakes and having to have jobs at 14 and work hard and have student loans. Like This is what kind of created us into this self-driven person that we are. But how do we teach our kids that when they have a little bit more cushion and they have mom and dad helping them pay for college. What are you doing to make sure your kids have that drive or are inquisitive and and learners? When my first son graduated from college, my husband and I said, now you have to start, once he got his full-time job, you have to start paying rent, which he wasn't happy about. 
And mind you, it was only like $500 or something, but it wasn't much. But my husband and I wanted to instill in him that, yes, you're still living at home, but you're now an adult, like you're a full-fledged adult and you're going to have real bills in life. So it's time for you to start practicing what it means to have to take care of yourself. That's one way that we've tried to, I mean, still make it reasonable. Like he just recently purchased a new car. He needed a new car. And so now he has that bill that he he's responsible for. But mind you, his first car we bought for him outright as a gift. And then he totaled it. But that's another story. Um, <laughs> but then we said, now you have to buy your own car. Like we already bought you a car. So now you have to step up. And I'm still paying for his younger brother to go to college. So, I mean, that's one way. Like, I think we do, we do give our kids the world, right? I mean, we've been hard workers all our lives. And so we've been able to provide for them. And I was adamant about providing my kids a college education. But after that, it's kind of on them. They have to, they can look to our example. Neither one of my children are very entrepreneurial. My older one, maybe in the sense because he's an artist. So I'm hoping that he, you know, eventually will sell his art and find his path that way. My younger son not really has no interest, at least at this point. You know, he's studying cybersecurity. He loves computers. He spends the majority of his life on computer. So he doesn't really seem to care. And we've had them help us with the condos because we have to clean them, you know, turn them over and stuff like that. So they know what is required of having real estate they want no part of it. Like, <laughs> you know, at least at this juncture, they're, they're in their early 20s. So it may come along later on. Hopefully we're sowing the seeds with them. So like we're showing them like these are paths they can take later in life. But right now they're young. And again, I didn't have a condo when I was 20 either. So <laughs> yeah, well, Rose, please tell people more about Teacher Talks Money and where they can find you. So they can find me at teachertalksmoney.com. They can set up a, a free discovery call with me where we can talk through where they're at right now and we can put some strategies in place for them. And again, that really grew out of just, I've been doing this kind of work for free in my school buildings because I kind of became known as the go-to person when in regards to pensions and money. And I kind of got this, like, I don't know if it's a good or bad reputation, but I was always talking about money. And they're like, oh, yeah, go ask Rose. She'll know that. So <laughs> and then one day, one of my friends just said to me, you know, you really should start a business because you're you've learned all this information through the years and you've put in a lot of effort. And it's not, you know, you really should be charging people to help them with their financial plans because the information you're giving them is very valuable. Right. So that's where where Teacher Talks Money kind of came out of there. And I was ready to just start another venture. And I'm about five years from my retirement. And I'm hoping that I can continue with Teacher Talks Money as a way to supplement my my pension as we go into retirement. Yeah, I was going to ask you if everyone in your district or in your school comes to you. And you help people all over, right? All teachers, not just in your district or state. You can help teachers all over. Yep. I absolutely love this. The other thing I will say about yourself, and I'm not surprised that you have had this success in your life, is, you know, I ran something like this bulk strategy 
where if you bought bulk books, you can advertise on the podcast or in my newsletter and then use the books to do that. And Rose was one of the first people who reached out for her small business to advertise and get bulk books. And what struck a chord just now as you were talking was it seems like you definitely not only invest time to learn and energy to learn, but you also invest money in yourself. And it doesn't have to be like a lot, but it seems like you're willing to bet on yourself and to do things to help move you forward. And it's a skill set also that I feel you have to have discernment and you might make mistakes or you might not get the return you always want when you make an investment. But it's something I, I feel like I relate to in you where there's an opportunity. Let me look into this opportunity. Why not try it? If you know, like I'm not gonna lose my my life savings, but it's something I can do to potentially put me further ahead. And so I just want to bring that out because I thought that that's pretty remarkable. And it's not surprising that you've had this success in your life. So I just want to thank you for coming on the show. Can you say your website and socials one more time for everyone? It's teachertalksmoney.com and at teachertalksmoney on Instagram. And I also just want to give a, a shout out to my husband because when I heard you talking about making that investment in myself, we've done it together. You know, he's always been my greatest supporter. And I've had many failures too along the way. I mean, even in my early 20s, I was forced to file bankruptcy. And this is probably one of the first times I've ever said that publicly because I was ashamed of it for a very, very long time. But I just want people to know out there that when you go through those failures, there's success on the other end too. And we have to forgive ourselves and move on because that's the only way you get to the the good stuff or the better stuff. And there's a lot to learn depending on what your circumstances are, where you're coming from, or the education that you've received or the parents that you've had. There's so many different things that you learn and then so many things that you don't know because of where you've come from. So it's just really important to just keep going and keep that open mind and bet on yourself. Absolutely. Bet on yourself every time. And are you always going to win? Absolutely not. You're going to fail over and over. But you know what? Eventually you will succeed. Oh, Rose, thank you so much. Don't forget, you can get the episode show notes for this episode by going to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this. And you can still grab your jumpstart guide for free to help you on your journey to financial freedom by going to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart. If you want to support me and the podcast and love the free content and information that you get here, here are four ways that you can support me and the show. One, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you listen, whether that's Apple Podcasts, that purple app on your phone, your Android device, YouTube, Spotify, wherever it is that you happen to listen, just subscribe so you are not missing an episode. And if you're happening to listen to this in Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe there. I appreciate and read every single review. Number two, follow me on my social media accounts. I'm at Journey to Launch on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I love, love, love interacting with journeyers there. Three, support and check out the sponsors of this show if you hear something that interests you. Sponsors are the main ways we keep the podcast lights on here, so show them some love for supporting your girl. Four, and last but not least, share this episode, this podcast with a friend or family member or coworker so that we can spread the message of Journey to Launch. All right, that's it. Until next week, keep on journeying, journeyers. Journeyers.